Welcome back to episode two of season two, part one of Down With This. I'm Bonnie Jean Alford, and I am the identity guru. And this is Life's a Blank, where we talk truth with real people about real life in real conversations. And I'm very excited to, to be here again tonight, taking part two into another level. In part one, we talked about America and the domestic side of hate and how that unfolds. Tonight, my guest and I, we had a real conversation about a global issue or for them there, local to them, but global to us in America. And currently I am residing in America. I am an American, I was born here. I study identity. I spend my life trying to understand people. And that's what brought this show to existence. I also know when I don't know something and the topic tonight is about the Israel-Palestine situation or the Palestine-Israel situation. Depending on which side of the coin you're on, it could be worded either way. Fact is, prior to the very conversation that I had with the beautiful Rahaf Othman, I knew almost nothing about what was going on in the Middle East with regard to Israel and Palestine. And to my knowledge, I don't think I'd ever met someone from Palestine before. So to learn about the Palestinian-Israeli situation, battle for what they both call the Holy Land, from somebody who came to America as a refugee, as a child, having faced life-threatening situations was a great honor for me. This isn't to say that the other side of the argument doesn't have valid points too, but tonight's episode is giving a platform to one side of the story that has truth in it that I didn't even know. And I have gone and done research after and verified the information because understanding history is really important to not being doomed to repeat history. Reality is that not every country is going to get along with another country, just like not every human being is going to get along with another human being. But in order to have peace, you have to show love and you have to rid yourself of hate. And let me be clear, this conversation is not about religion. It is about nationalism. It is about perceptions of society beyond the borders of these two countries. It is about people who did wrong to one group trying to make up for it and ultimately doing so at the expense of another group. Because hate begets hate begets hate. Even if you try to do the right thing, 
but because of hate. And that's really where the root of the show comes from, is trying to understand the identities at play in a situation and really try to get at, try to get at justice and building those bridges that we talked about in episode one. Whether we're talking about racism or nationalism, or even we get into talk discussions of religion. A later episode this season, we are going to explore what Islam really is. And at some point in the season, we're gonna, going to talk about things that have nothing to do with politics or religion, like following your dreams. I'm really excited about the season, but I'm also really excited to have, have having had a real conversation about Palestine and what's happening there. I'm sure some of you are saying to yourself that I must be someone who's anti-Semitic, but this really isn't about religion. And it's not about anything other than recognizing that there is a problem that needs a bridge built between two groups of people. Whether the problem is based in religion or nationalism or misplaced, restoration at the expense of another group, that's for you to decide for yourself. I'm not trying to decide for you what to believe. All I'm asking is you listen to the conversation, listen to the truth that is shared. And at some point in the season, I may have a conversation with someone from Israel and get that side of the truth from somebody who sees it differently. Somewhere in the midst is the whole of the story and somewhere in the midst is the answer to achieve peace in a region that's been at, at conflict for decades, maybe longer. And I, for one, am very excited to have you listen to our conversation. And I, for one, am also excited to have you go do more research and learn and love your neighbor as if yourself, or maybe better than yourself, because, you know, sometimes I have those days too, where loving others more than I love myself becomes the reality. But I dream of a world where we can all just respect each other enough to put down weapons, to put down hate, to put down difference, and just have an open conversation. Because life is a blank. And today's episode is trying to fill some of those blanks in right after the break. Good afternoon, Rahaf. Um, I am excited to have a conversation with you. For our guests where, that are listening, we are welcoming to the conversation today, Rahaf Othman, who is a high school social science teacher. Am I right? Yes. Yes. And can you can you tell my listeners where you teach and, and specifically what grades? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me today. Um, I teach high school social studies in Oakland, Richards High School in Oakland. I teach mostly juniors and seniors, um, Illinois, uh, Illinois, U.S. history, Chicago history, government and economics is what I usually teach every year. Wow. So you get into those deep political issues on how the world is affecting us. I have the students get into those deep political issues. It, it's not coming from me, it's all them. But, but we teach them how to think critically and how to have those conversations. Because I think as a society, we don't know how to have those conversations. We don't talk politics on the dinner table. And then when people disagree with politics, they just stop talking to each other and, and ruin friendships. So I, I'd like to think that by the time my seniors have completed my class that they can have a conversation with someone that they disagree with and not hate them and break the relationship with them by the time it's done. Well, I am absolutely in agreement on that. I, I think that one of the biggest problems in American society is we don't talk and we don't have respect for each other. And I think that's not just America. I think that goes beyond American borders. And I think that's what's caused big problems in other regions where there's this misunderstanding. And even sometimes there's an understanding, but there's just this idea that one way is better than another. And so you put up blocks, which is actually one of the reasons I wanted to, to have a conversation. I know recently there's been again or continuously, but a new upheaval in Gaza in the in Palestine, Palestine um, and in between Palestine and Israel. And I know this is a battle that's been going on most recent history, more than 70 years, but I, this, this isn't just a new thing for the last century. It's It's been a battle between the two subcultures of the region for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Because I, well, I know basics I, and I know the oppression and the, the war, you know, the, the attacks that are happening with bombs from one side to a side that doesn't have bombs, but I don't think people really understand what the whole thing is about. And maybe we don't even know anymore what it's all about, but I, I what's your take on that? Sure, absolutely. Actually, I want to go back to something you said earlier about mm -hmm. having conversations all around the world. There's actually certain parts of the country that you can't talk politics. And so we're very blessed within the United States where you can say, I don't agree with this leadership, or I don't agree with the president or my senator. And there's a lot of countries where you, you can't do that um, because you can end up in jail or even worse. And so um, the, the Middle East crisis, like the modern day over 73 years, when the Ottoman Empire fell apart and the area was colonized during imperialism, um, the, the United Kingdom had control of that area. And so after World War II, and by the way, during World War II, the world knew that the Holocaust was happening. Nobody wanted to get involved. The United States knew it was happening, but they did not want to get involved. They did not want to bring them here as immigrants. They just they didn't want to deal with it. So they were trying to ignore it and hope that it would go away. And we all know that things don't go away when you ignore them, they don't get worse. No, they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. It, it ends up escalating and, and blowing up in your face. Um, and so after World War II ended and after um, the world found out what happened in Germany, in, in the um, camps, Auschwitz, how the Jews were killed by the masses, there was this huge sense of remorse, like we should have done something, we should have done more, we could have prevented this. And so what they wanted to do at that point, because the Jews had overly 
been displaced for, for hundreds of years is they wanted to give them a home. And so they, I believe the original plan was to give them Ethiopia, but to actually give them land that other people was, were living on already just doesn't make sense to me. But I know Ethiopia was the plan. And they said, no, they wanted the Holy Land. And because, because of the Holocaust and everything that happened, they told them that fine, through the Balfour Declaration, they can move to the Holy Land. Now, when they first started moving in, um, the Palestinians were very welcoming. It's like, this is the Holy Land. Everyone is welcome. Sure, we'll share. But eventually, Israel started taking over more and more land, and a lot of Palestinians became displaced. And that's what essentially led to the problems. If we all just share and everybody gets along, it's great. But the, the way that I try to explain it is this. Um, I've got a friend knocks on my door and says, I've got no place to stay. Can I stay in your house? And so I open my door and I say, sure, you can stay in my house. You've got access to everything. Enjoy. And the friend slowly starts taking over my house. And at one point they take everything over except like a bathroom and say, you have to stay here and you can't use anything else. The rest of the house is mine now. Nobody's going to settle for that. And that's what happened in the Middle East is as more and more land was taken, you know, the Palestinians started pushing back. Now I am a Palestinian refugee. I came here from Palestine. We came as a little, I, I came as a little girl with my family. We had no choice. We had to leave. And the reason we had to leave was because the Israeli soldiers had beat up my dad and left him for dead. Um, can I share that story? Yeah, absolutely. You're bringing tears to my eyes even. Um, my, my, there have something, the Israelis, and, and by the way, this is not a, a Jewish versus a Muslim conflict. This is not about religion. This is the holiest land in the world. And so you've got Jews, Christians, Muslims. This is an Israeli issue versus a Palestinian issue. And with Palestinians, you've got Muslims, Christians, and even Palestinian Jews. So there was, there's something every once in a while, the Israelis try to take control of the territory if they feel that the Palestinians are either um, pushing back so hard or to let them know where their place is. They have this thing called which means you're not allowed to leave your house. You're on lockdown. And so, um, and sometimes they do it for two or three days. So can you imagine where you're locked into your home and you can't step outside the door? Because if you do, they're going to come after you with, with guns. And so my teenage cousin who was 15 years old at the time, and we all know how teenagers are and they think they're immortal and they don't have to follow the rules and they can do whatever. But she opened the door and went outside and started walking down the street. My dad hears a commotion, looks out the window and sees all these soldiers surrounding his niece. So he runs outside without thinking about his safety. He wants to protect his niece. He runs outside. The soldiers let the niece go. They let my cousin go, but then they beat up my dad and they beat him so badly, we thought he was gonna die. He was, he was on his deathbed for two weeks and we were just waiting for it. And he miraculously recovered after two weeks. And like, we were surprised because everybody thought he was, he was gonna pass. Um, and so we were ecstatic, he, he recovered, we're good, everything's great. And then six months later, some of the same soldiers that beat him up happened to come by to the area and they saw that my dad survived and they beat him up again. They did it again. And so at that point, my mom said, I can't be a widow. They're going to keep doing this until they kill him. And we can't, we can't live like this. And there were five of us at the time, five kids. My parents had two more after we came here, so seven total. Now, 
we had the paperwork to come to the United States. My uncle, um, my dad's brother was already living in the United States. He had sponsored us. We had gotten approved to come to the United States for a few years prior. But who wants to leave their home country? This is where generations have been. This is your mm -hmm. homeland. It's all you know. Who wants to pick up and go? And I think that's forgotten a lot of times when we talk about immigrants and even like illegal immigration is why would people pick up and leave unless things were so bad that they had no choice? And so we didn't, my parents did not want to come to the United States. They wanted to stay in their country. But at that point, mom was like, this is not going to work for me. I'm, I'm going to be a widow and I'm not doing that. And so she told my dad, we're going to have to, we're going to have to leave. Otherwise we're not going to survive. And we need to give our, our children opportunities. Now, mind you, both my mother and father both have an eighth grade education. They couldn't get anything higher because of the situation and what was going on over there. So mom is a strong believer in education. And she said, all right, I don't wanna be a widow. I want my children to have opportunities to succeed in the future. We gotta go. And so we came to the United States and anyone will tell you that the first year in a different country is probably the hardest and the most difficult. Um, we were so proud of our mom when we came on the flight over, mom knew a little bit of British English from what she, she had learned in Palestine. And so we were like, mom speaks English. And we were like so proud that, that she was able to communicate with the flight attendants on our trip over. But that first year here was such a struggle and it was so hard. And sometimes people are like, all right, I wanna go back. We did not have that option, we couldn't. So we had to make it work. And so we made it work. So, you know, you talk about, well, one of the things that I teach when I teach my college classes is I talk about the political identity that people have, the, the national identity, that connectedness that, to, to homeland. That's, that was my what my master's thesis was actually about, was connectedness to homeland. And you, you said a really key point there, that the battle between Israeli and Palestine is, or Israel and Palestine, excuse me for jumbling uh, that there, is about the nation, not a nation state. It's about the political ideology as opposed to the religious ideology. Now, there are a lot of people that think about the Middle East and automatically jump to, well, all those Middle Easterners are just all Muslims and they're all, and fill in whatever blank. The reality is that that space isn't, that isn't the case. I mean, there are a lot of Middle Easterners who aren't Muslim and a lot of Muslims who aren't from the Middle East. That's right. That <laughs> uh, is right. So, so this bat, this reality of the battle between happening between Israel and Palestine for many years, even I was under the false um, understanding that it was a battle between Jews and Muslims. And I always struggled. I'm like, but most of the people I know who are Jewish understand that Islam is a continuation, even if they don't agree with the, the religion, they get that. And Muslims absolutely get that. So where's this disconnect? Where's the bridge being blown up? You know, I didn't understand. So that what you've said really helps put it in perspective. And, you know, I it just, it really, really puts it in perspective and I appreciate it. And I really like the idea of the, the you know, opening the door and welcoming neighbors and then, you know, it being taken over by someone else. I, I, I think we've all faced aspects of that in our life where we've been part of a project and somebody took it over. I mean, maybe the house isn't as, for some people they wouldn't get it, but I, I've been on projects where I was supposed to be the lead project um, manager on it. And then behind my back, people did things that circumvented my choices on said project. 
And then I don't even find out about it till I'm in the room for the presentation and suddenly they've, they're like, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, what? This is my project. <laughs> right. right, and you feel hurt and betrayed, especially when um, you, you, you put your heart and soul into it and you were very open and honest from the beginning and, that, and you weren't treated with that same courtesy. And so it hurts. Yeah, no, I, I can't even, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of, of making a move leave, to move out of the country to live some to live in Japan because I just I want to experience a new culture. And I'm thinking about your story and I'm thinking about how difficult it is for me and I and this is a choice I'm making because I want to make a change. Nothing's forcing me anywhere. I'm not facing guns. I'm not facing violence. This is a personal choice to experience a new thing. And if it doesn't work out, I know I can pick up and move back or I can pick up and move to the next place on my list or whatever I wanna do. I'm trying to imagine what it's like to, I mean, we can all imagine a little better the lockdown side of things after the last year. But even with the lockdown, we didn't have guns coming in our faces when we left our homes if we had to leave our homes for any reason. So while we can relate with that, what is what was it like to walk around in a world where you walked around with guns literally being toted as a means of well a tool of oppression i mean let's just call a spade a spade for a minute um when you if you were to go to a, a Palestinian village. And the first time you see the soldiers with the guns, you'd get freaked out and go, oh my goodness, like how are people living like this? And then after a while you become almost immune to it. And you see the Palestinians reactions, like they stared down the soldiers with no fear, no fear. Like they, and, and I think that's, and I think the soldiers don't know how to handle that. So let me, let me give you an example. I did, after, as I said, we came here when I was a little girl. Um, my husband, my father-in-law was kicked out of Palestine with the 1967 war. So he had no place to go. He ended up going to Kuwait um, where he got married and raised his children, one of which was my husband. And so my husband had never been to Palestine. And so I said, you need to go. Like that's the holy land you need to go visit your village where you, you know, you're originally from, go, go see the Holy Land. So we decided to take a trip there with our American passports. And I can't tell you how privileged we are to have American passports because I saw the treatment of everyone else and even the treatment that we had um, until they saw the passports, it's different. So there was a checkpoint. And the checkpoints, by the way, are these big, tall concrete walls you can stand in line at this checkpoint for four hours just across the street. You just want to get across the street, but you got to get through this checkpoint. And so we were in line and I had the stroller. I had, um, I had three kids at the time. Now I have four. And my youngest was a year and a half. So I've got the stroller and we're in line, but I took the stroller and I just got out of line. You know how when, like when you're driving and there's the traffic, so you just move the car a little bit to see what's going on and then you come back. So I just took the stroller a little bit to see what's going on. And within seconds, we were surrounded by five soldiers with their guns pointed at my kid. Their guns were not pointed at me. Their guns were pointed at my one and a half year old. And they immediately started talking in Arabic because the Israeli soldiers can speak Arabic. They can also 
you know, they, they, I mean, they're multilingual. So anyway, they start talking to Arabi. And the first thing they say is the guns pointed at my kid. And I think that's done on purpose. I mean, so as a parent, you see that and you totally freak out. I can't imagine the trauma that it, it would create for a little one, but um, they said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I was just trying to see, like they said, what are you doing in Arabi? And I responded to them in English. Oh, I was just trying to see how long the line is, how much longer it would be. And so immediately they're like, oh, wait, you're American? And I said, yes. And he goes, show us your passport. So I took out the passports. And as soon as they saw the, the American passports, they totally like eased up and became nicer. Uh, they put the guns down. They like, we had a conversation. Where are you from? We talked about the city of Chicago. And then they walked us across the checkpoint. Like we didn't have to wait in line anymore. But that's because we had our passports. If we didn't have our passports, I can not imagine how that would have ended with five guns barrels in my in my son's face. You know, and so we are very privileged to be American citizens. I like there was I I noticed the way that they talked to other people. There was one point where we were coming in from Jordan and the I felt like I felt like we were a herd of animals, the way that we were treated. Like the way we went into Palestine was from Jordan. And it's like, they, they just threw all of our luggage in a pile and you had to go fish. And then you had to get in line to, you know how they, they're the border patrol did. And so the way that they talked to us was just, it was mean and inhumane. And so again, as, again, as soon as it was our turn, I started talking to um, the person that, that was taking care of us in English and she immediately became nice. Oh, I'm so sorry about this wait. I'm sorry you had to wait this long. All right, you know what? I'm gonna let you through this way. And I'm like, but how about all these other people? Okay, you're, you're doing, you can be nice to me, but you can also be nice to all these other people, right? And so it's, it's, it's different treatment depending on who they're talking to. And you can see that, that, they, that they think the Palestinians are, are beneath them. Um, it's, it's like they, they see them as savages. And it's, it's really sad because we're all human and nobody should, should think anyone else is beneath them. Yeah. Do you think that, you know, I mean, obviously it's a top-down historical generational thing that's happened. I mean, do you think that, that it, like in the case of the soldiers, you know, they're doing what they're supposed to, they're doing what they're told, you know, they're in the military, they have orders. Do you think that they really truly at the depths of themselves believe everything is factual that that the Palestinians deserve to be oppressed? Not that anyone deserves to be oppressed, but that's that's our belief that there are some people who actually believe others deserve to be oppressed. I, I can't I can't I can't even wrap my brain around that idea, but I mean, do you do you think that they really are that way or do you think they're more there's some following orders? Because I, I think about the Holocaust. And there are, you know, lower level soldiers who will, who came out after and, and became witnesses and said, I, I didn't know what to do. Here I was in this situation. I was told to take people to these chambers and then people ended up dead. And I was just doing what I was told. I didn't know how to stop it. If I, if I spoke up, I was going to have a gut bullet in my head just alongside these people. Um, I didn't put any bullets in anyone's head, but I didn't stop it either. You know, so they, they, they felt they had no choice. I mean, do you think that some of the soldiers and some of these workers are that way, or do you think people actually believe it? I, sorry, the bell just rang. 
I, I think they actually believe that. I've seen the hatred in their eyes. Um, I, 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 feel, I feel like they, they actually believe that. And I feel like because we are so resilient and we won't just bow down and go away, that, that scares them. And so they do see us as a threat. I mean, I don't know how we can be a threat when all we have are rocks and they've got nuclear bombs, but they do see us as a threat. And so that's something that I've been, what you said is something that I've been questioning for years. Like their, their grandparents went through the Holocaust. So how can you turn around and treat people this way? And it's very similar, but it's very different. I mean, there's no concentration camps, but at the same time, you know, the, it's the, like Gaza, for example, the way that it's set up, they're not mass killing them in, in, in gas chambers, but they're still finding a way to like mass kill them, you know? Uh, I mean, um, in, sorry, go ahead. No, in, in the Holocaust, it didn't start with the camps. It started with ghettos. It started with locking people away in neighborhoods and having checkpoints. The only difference is this has been going on for 70 years in, in Germany. They quickly moved on to the, the chambers and the camps, whereas they eyes are on them. They can't go to the camps, but they, like what I'm seeing is very things very reminiscent, and I agree. Like, how can a group of people that have spent eons being oppressed, you know, turn around and oppress the same way? It just, or you know, it's the same with name calling. You know, how can people who spent their life being called names and 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 been called horrible names turn around and think it's okay to call someone else a name, even if it seems innocuous? It just doesn't make sense to me. And and I and. And the thing, and, and I want to, I totally agree with you with, with the Holocaust, you had a lot of the soldiers that said, we were just told what to do and you go with the flow. And that's where, well, if you didn't speak up, you know, how, you knew this was wrong. Well, I just took my orders. I think this is a little bit different. Um, I also feel like because the entire world feels a sense of remorse and compassion um, to Jews because of the Holocaust that and it's not all Jews, but the Israeli Zionists take advantage of that and they play to that. And so when someone says anything, when you say, I support Palestine or the, you know, that you're being a little too aggressive over there, they immediately respond by, by calling you an, an anti-Semite. Um, I have many Jewish friends that support Palestine and they're not saying, all right, let's obliterate one side or the other, but they're saying we support Palestine's right to exist. And as soon as they speak up, the first thing they're told is, well, you're anti-Semitic. So how, you know, that, that you're, you're against Jews. And so one of my friends said, but I am Jewish. Like, how, how are you telling me I'm against Jews when I'm Jewish myself? And they go, yeah, you're against your own kind. And so I feel like that's just the go-to response. You can't have a conversation. So you and I were talking earlier about like throwing insults instead of engaging in an actual conversation. Right. I have yet to engage in an actual conversation with anyone because as soon as I share one opinion, just one fact, the immediate response is, well, you're anti-Semitic. But I was born there. I'm a Semite. I'm not anti-Semitic, but that's the immediate response to get. It's, you know, and so, and then they turn around and go, well, Israel is an ally to the United States. And, and you know, one of the things that I keep harping on is the $3.8 billion that the United States gives Israel every single year. And 
I'm, I'm harping on that because one, it's being used to torture and kill children, but two, we can use that money at home. We can, we can better fund our education system. We can help our veterans. We can help our homeless. We can work on streets and roads and infrastructure. And so like you take a look at COVID, for example, everyone in Israel was set and everyone got the vaccine and, and, and they, they were given like monetary supplements to help them cope during that time. And then you take a look at the United States and we had two $1,200 checks and told we don't have any more money. Like we can't help you really. And so how can we send all that money over there and then not, not take care of our own? I mean, and let me give you another scenario because I, li- I like to give scenarios like that. Oh, I like scenarios too. <laughs> <laughs> if, some, if a friend comes to me and says, you know what? I'm having trouble paying my rent. Can you help me? Can you loan me some money? I will give you the shirt off my back, but first I got to make sure that I can pay my own bills. I need to pay my own rent or my mortgage and make sure my bills are paid off. And whatever's left after that, you can have all of it, but I can't give you my rent money to pay your rent. And then I get kicked out of my house. Like how Mm -hmm. that defeats the purpose. And so I feel like the United States, what we're doing right now is we're thinking of Israel first and we're giving them the money first, and then we're taking the leftovers and trying to figure out what to do with that, and it's not enough. You know, so I, I think that's one of the issues. And then one of the arguments I get besides being anti-Semitic is that Israel is an ally. And here's here's my question, and here's my response to that. How is Israel an ally? What has Israel done for the United States? Whenever there's a war, we've been involved in several wars since, since Israel came about 1948, when have they stepped up and fought a war with us? They're, they have a major military power. When have they turned around and given us money? When have they been an ally? It's like a one-sided friendship. You know how you have that friend that you give, 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 and all they do is take, 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 and then at some point you're like, this is not balanced and I don't like this. When are we going to decide this is not balanced? Because it's not. We're doing all the giving unconditionally without asking questions. Mm-hmm. And we're getting absolutely nothing in return. Well, and, and my my thought is, why can't we talk to Palestine about being an ally too? Why can't we help Palestine? Why can't we, you know, why can't we live in a world where we see humans before we see other things? And I just, I question, you know, this, this idea, you know, this whole going back to this anti-Semitic thing. The, the, the problem is not religious. The, I mean, yes, there's religions, my major religions that are practicing in the countries. You don't think Israel and you don't think Muslim, even though I, I imagine there are Muslim Israelites as well. And you don't think Palestine and think Jews or Christians, but at the same time, they are there. So like, this isn't about religion. So how can people go to that, go to being anti-Semitic? What's happening is anti-human. Like if we take this and talk about the Rohingya, for instance, in Burma, you know, I don't know, I know you know about the Rohingya, but I don't know if you know much about the history of Burma. There's some similarity to, to the situation in Israel and Palestine. You know, in, in the 1940s um, and 1962 specifically, there was a coup and, and this whole um, 50 plus year battle of oppression from the military government of the people to the point of just oppressing everyone. 
Now, when I got involved with it, I didn't know anything about what was going on with the Rohingya, but they were being oppressed alongside all of the sub or minor ethnicities. So Burma's made up of, you know, well, well over 20 ethnicities and there's the main ethnicity and then there's others. So if you became part of the military, you were you were good for the most part, but military members were indoctrinated by being forced to rape women. That was the indoctrination of a military soldier in Burma up and up until at least 15 years ago, it was still taking place in the early, in the late 1900s and early 2000s. And so imagine being this kid, a 13, 14, 15 year old boy with a gun to your head and being told to have sex with a woman. Of course, it's not sex, it's rape. Both of the two people having the gun to their head is, is, are being raped. But then because this person, this boy is now part of the military, he's part of the group, he becomes indoctrinated and does it on his own. He doesn't need to have a gun to his head anymore. That supposedly ended, of course. And then the oppression of the people of Burma was done and there was more integration. People from different ethnic groups were made. But then it did become part of a religious persecution in Burma with the Rohingya. So when I bring this up, because I think it's important to, to recognize that while there is not a real religious reasoning for this that's happening, religion seems to play a role. And I think religion plays a role with the Rohingya because they are the only group that is Muslim in the nation of Burma. And if we look at other countries where some of this is happening, maybe we can think about some solutions. Like if we can find solutions in one, maybe those solutions will work in another. And, I, and I've been grappling for this for years. This is not like, oh, suddenly they've attacked in Gaza again, let's find a solution. And I don't, if people wanna call me anti-Semitic, yeah, people will laugh because I'm the lead, I, I'm anti-violence, anti-oppression. I'm pro-human, pro-people, pro-love. Let's, let's, let's do all of that. So I, I just, I laugh at the chance of letting someone call me a name and I'll be like, ah, no respect, you've called me a name. <laughs> And I, and I love you for that because I'm the same way. It's, it's called humanity and you just, I mean, we're all human. And, and I think sometimes people forget that. But and, and in response to that, the, the reason that anti-Semitic is the go-to is because they know that there's a lot of compassion because people think of the Holocaust. And so the, and, and the Middle East crisis is not gonna be solved in a day. Um, Rohingya is not gonna be solved in, in, in a day, in an hour, but I think one of the one of the ways that we can work on it is through awareness. So, like for example, this conversation that we're having right now. Absolutely, I, and that's why I, I said, "Hey, let's have a conversation." <laughs> and, and I think, and I struggle with the media because the media doesn't always like share everything, and sometimes they share things from a certain perspective in a certain mm -hmm. way, and they can twist and turn it how they want. And so, though, even with this last, you know situation right now between Palestine and Israel, I've seen a shift. And I, I mean, I've been looking at this for the last 40 years, but I've seen a shift this time. And I think it's because of the awareness that was brought about by social media. It's not just the media that's controlling the narrative and what's shared out there. And so there's a lot more awareness of some of the things that are happening. And so for the first time, and this is the first time, there was a lot more, a lot of pushback towards Israel. And they weren't used to that. They were not used to the pushback because they always get the unconditional support. Well, and I think too, there's also been a difference this time in two reasons. One, 
I know kids have always been killed too, but in the past, we didn't have the evidence of the kids being killed the same as we do now. Like because of social media, because of our, everybody having phones in their hand, there are pictures of these kids in being killed that are reminiscent of the Holocaust. I mean, they like, I look at these pictures and I'm like, you could transport it back in time to the 1940s and it'd be the kids in the camps. Like there's, there's, it's, it's eerie. And I think the second is there are Israelites, people who are Israeli, whether they live in Israel or not, who are speaking out. They're right. risking their own lives to, to make comments on social media and have their, their information shared and, and break out of the box. And I think you're absolutely right. Awareness is key. Like people being aware of what's going on. You know, here I am educated. And until the last year or so, I didn't even know, even until this conversation, I didn't even know the whole of the story. Like I didn't know that about when is, I didn't, I actually didn't even know Israeli was began in the 1940s. Like I, I, and I'm educated and I look things up and I research and because we're not, it's not part of our everyday, I didn't, I didn't know. So I didn't know, no, I needed to know. I just was like, oh yeah, it's just the battle between the Muslims and the Jews again, you know, because that's what we were taught. Right. But, th but that's because that's what the world wanted you to know. And they were exactly. able to control the narrative and they can't, they can't do that anymore. Right. And, well, that, and this is, by the way, this is the first time in, in American history where we had congressmen that stood up and addressed Congress and talked about Palestine and not fully and unconditionally without conditions funding Israel and the killing of children. That's never happened before. Like this time was different. It was different. Do you think that that means there's an opening for change? Absolutely. And I think that politicians are learning now because in the past, if you didn't pledge support for Israel, the belief was you weren't gonna get elected. And so all politicians would say, we 100% support Israel because they wanted to get elected and reelected. And they're learning that that's not the case anymore because my own Congresswoman from, from I'm in Illinois District 3, Marie Newman won and she pledged support and for, for Palestinians right to exist during her campaign. Now, were people outraged that she said this out loud? Absolutely, but she won. AOC supports Palestine. She won. Um, you had Rashida Tlaib, who APAC said, we don't support her. Don't vote for her. She's going to lose because we don't support her. She won. And so we're learning that APAC is not as powerful as they think they are. And that there, you can be supportive of Palestine's right to exist. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to lose your bid for election. And so- I'm sorry to interrupt, but you you mentioned like Apex. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who that is, but do our our listeners might not. And while I know who AOC is, can you like let? Because <laughs> not everybody knows abbreviations and and shorthand. <laughs> I, I, she's our congresswoman from uh, from New York. Her name right. what, I, and I can't. I don't even. And, and this sounds wrong, but I don't think I can even pronounce her name correctly. I, mean, <laughs> I, I know that's horrible. Um, <laughs> But, but she's the, the outspoken progressive. And I think what, what's going, and I think what happened is APEC is, a, is, a, um, is an organization, a very powerful organization um, in DC. And basically, um, and I don't know much about it either, but I know they're always pushing for like support of Israel. And I know they control politics in DC right. and they're losing control. Okay. And I don't, okay. and I can't explain, I'm not going to do it justice if I try to 
to explain it to you. But my yeah, point her, is that her, her name is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Thank you. And I was going to say Cortez, but I knew I was going to mess up the the Ocasio. Yes. Yeah. So okay. yeah. And so the they're learning. A lot of politicians are learning that you can you can you can run for office without that blind support and making that comment of blind support and you'll still be okay. So what do you think, um, now we're getting close to our, we've actually gone over our plan time, but that's okay. We're having a, an amazing conversation, but we are getting close to the time because I do know you get, you get to go to class again. Um, yes. What do you think is something, if you if you could be part of a team that was designed to build bridges, what would be the first thing, and maybe the second thing, but the first thing that you would do to start to build the bridge between Israel and Palestine? The first thing that I would wanna do is level the playing field. If you think about it, you've got that 3.8 billion. And I think the United States gives Palestine a couple hundred thousand, but compare a couple hundred thousand to 3.8 billion. If we can, level the playing field, I think you can have genuine conversations. I don't think you can have conversations right now because you've got one group that's in total control and they're, and as long as they have that control, nothing is going to change. As long as they have the power to oppress another group, you're not, nothing's going to happen. But if we can level the playing field where, where all sides can just sit down and, and I think more progress would be made. But the but what's happening right now is you've got Israel that's that's funded with all this money. And so they can do whatever they want. And then you've got the Palestinians. I mean, when I went there, they were throwing rocks. That's all they had is they don't have any weapons. They were throwing rocks. And I don't think anything's going to happen until we level the playing field. How do we do that? I'm going to be honest with you. I think the United States needs to step aside. I think they need to just step aside and let the people that live in that area figure themselves out. It's like, you know how when you've got two friends that are fighting and you try to get in the middle of it, sometimes you're doing more damage than help. Step right. back, let them go through their struggles and, and try to figure themselves out. And most of the time they'll be able to, to solve it. I mean, sometimes, yes, they're gonna, you know, separate their friendship and sever it and they'll never be friends again. But there is that possibility to find solutions. And it's never gonna happen as long as you've got these outside factors that are choosing sides and then giving them the resources to, to overwhelm the other side. Well, it doesn't even matter if, if Palestine and Israel are friends or not. I mean, Palestine is Palestine, set off, set the space that's, that's a country for the Palestinians, set space that is for the Israelis and have two countries and let them be two countries and they don't have to be friends but they can be nice to each other. They can be neighborly to each other. Yes. And, and that's the thing. So like you, you bring up the case of the two friends, you know, we've all been in that situation. And I look at the one and say, I'm happy to be mediator for you and, and help you have a conversation. But let me just tell you, I'm friends with you and I'm friends with you. And that's that. <laughs> and, I'm not, and I'm not choosing sides. It's not happening. Yeah. And, and I, know, but I'll, I'll call you both out on your behavior. So yeah. yes. And you know what? And I, and I, I know people that are, their thoughts are, all right, this has just gotta be Israel. Some people are like, all right, they gotta move on. It's just gotta be Palestine. I, I believe that everybody has the right to live and I'd like to all just get along. But you know, yeah. can we all live, this is the holy land. It's like the most religious land in the world. Can we all just live peacefully and get along? Let's stop fighting. Let's stop killing people and just 
live amongst each other. Why? Like that would be my ultimate like dream come true. Um, it's not that land is not necessarily mine. It's not Israel's. That land is the holy land. It belongs to everybody all around the world. And so that's what I don't like is the territorial. Like this is mine, and no, you're gonna if you want it, let's fight about it. I'm gonna kill you. You kill me. No, why? Why can't everybody like just live? Well, it's like I always go back to the Native American thought process. You know, I mean, and of course, there's a whole nother can of worms for oppression. Right. But go back and, and think about how they view the idea of land. We're just stewards borrowing it from nature and right. we need to treat it with the respect and dignity that we need to treat each other with. Right. And when power gets in the mix, you know, Karl Marx tells us that power corrupts and you know, whenever you want power, you just keep going for power. This is why he built his whole theories around the idea of a common good and, and unification. And, and until we start to accept that power isn't the be all end all, but love is, and then we'll never end up getting rid of the hate. And that, and that saddens me to no end. Like it completely saddens me. Um, so I, I really do appreciate you having this conversation, and I think it is a very enlightening conversation for people to hear, and I'm really glad that we did. Are there any last thoughts or ideas that you want to share with, um, with the listeners as we continue this conversation? Uh, and hopefully they, I hope you all continue this conversation in your daily lives, because that's what this is all about, starting and continuing conversations. I just want to thank you for giving me the space to have this conversation. I mean, it's really neat that that we're here and we're engaging in this. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. And I know you are an excellent teacher. So you go give some brilliance to your students. And as soon as we air, I'll make sure you have the link. And I hope everybody who's listening shares the link. And uh, at this moment, we are going to take a brief break before we come back with our next guest today. So remember, we're not down with racism. We're not down with hate. We're only down with love and kindness. And I have no idea what commercial you're going to hear. So thank you. And we'll see you in a few minutes. Welcome back. Thank you for listening to Rahaf and I as we had a beautiful conversation that went to some very deep, deep places. It's always an honor to have a conversation with such a beautiful human being. And I look forward to each and every episode this season with other beautiful human beings. I know in the end of the episode, I mentioned that there would be another guest tonight for another beautiful conversation. However, after I finished this conversation, as well as looking at the conversation from episode one, I realized that both of them needed to stand on their own and they were two parts to a whole. And thus there is not another guest tonight. Only a recognition that we need to be down with love always. We need to build bridges between everyone and respect and care and really try to make the world better, if not for ourselves, at least for the future. I hope that in our coming episodes, you will join us as we talk about other aspects of political underpinnings in the world, or we look at religion, 
I also have an episode in store talking about following one's dreams. The season is going to be exciting. And every week, hopefully, I'm going to bring you another conversation full of beautiful insights, maybe some different opinions, and a lot of respect. That is something we all can be down with. Thank you, and please enjoy an encore play of Down With This by Sharice Arrington. If you're down with this, all the fellas throw your hands up. Ladies move their bodies back and forth. Now tell me, do you want more? You're down with this. If you're down with this, sisters, let me hear your hands clap. Brothers, do you think the groove is real fat? Now tell me, do you like that? You're down with this. Yeah.